1: you return that I might live In my father's
2: house The following is where Israel failed. And listen, don't make the same mistakes. What were those mistakes? Well, first of all, the leaders chose to make war without seeking God's counsel first. And what was the outcome of that? They were solidly defeated. You know, don't put yourself in a position where you find yourself dragging yourself back, beaten down, you know, because you didn't allow God to be a part of the decision-making process.
0: God designed us with an amazing ability to reason and create. This can be a blessing, but when we put our own intelligence on a pedestal and lean on it more than on the one who gave it to us, it can become dangerous. This is what we'll witness in the Israelites in today's passage. As Pastor Mike will explain, they put their trust in the Ark of the Covenant to serve their purposes, even when their purposes didn't align with God's plan. The consequences of their poor judgment were devastating. Now, here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 4 as he continues his message, The Danger of Presumption.
2: The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and there was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Okay, what a tragedy. I mean, think about that. 30,000 men were killed and then in verse 11 we are told that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and Eli's two sons were slain in the battle. Quite a calamity, wouldn't you uh, agree here? Well, notice now, the scene quickly shifts back to Shiloh. Let's pick up now in verses 12 through 15. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle in the line or from the front line where he had been engaged against the Philistines on the same day, and he came back to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head which, by the way, back then within that culture was a sign of mourning. Whenever any disturbance had taken place or someone passed away or you know, some tragedy fell upon people there in the Middle East, that's the, that's the way that they would respond to it. Uh, they would tear their clothes and they would put dirt on their uh, head. Now, verse 13. Now, when he came, there was Eli, the high priest, sitting on a seat by the wayside, and he was watching, for his heart trembled for the Ark. You see, I believe that Eli, the high priest's conscience, was bothering him. Why was that? Because he knew that he let the Ark of the Covenant go on an unwise, superstitious errand. But that's what the people wanted. He was the high priest. He could have refused their request, but he didn't. And he allowed them to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the holy place to go out and Uh, be a part of this uh, battle. Verse 14, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this turmoil mean? And the man came quickly and told uh, Eli. So, okay, so what do we have here? What's the scene depicting? Well, Eli, the priest, according to our text, is now blind. He's sitting on a backless seat beside the highway, He's waiting for the news of the battle uh, to come back to him. A number of people are standing on the wall of the city uh, there in Shiloh. And notice this runner who had just come back from the front lines. He's speeding towards the city, a messenger from the battlefield. And breathlessly, he describes the events of the day. And one writer commenting on what this messenger had said, this is what the commentator uh, described it like, Each item of information was like a blow of a hammer as it flattened the iron on the anvil of God's justice. Okay, so what did this messenger say? Well, let's pick up now in verses 16 and 17. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. So this was a complete rout of Israel's army. Thousands of young men had been killed, and also Eli's sons had been slain in the battle, and the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines. Now, how did Eli, the high priest, respond to this? He's overcome with grief. He loses his balance. He's sitting on that backless chair, as I've just mentioned. And in verse 18, we read, then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off of the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for a period of 40 years. Now, before we go on, line by line, through this exposition, and we're doing a pure exposition of chapter 4, I want you to notice something here. Samuel is not mentioned in this story. Now, why is that? And you know, when I read that, you know, and this is the way that we should read the, the Word of God. You know, when something gets our attention, we ought to just stop uh, in the progression of our reading and ask ourselves some certain questions. Like, for example, why isn't Samuel mentioned in this account? Well, possibly, we're not quite sure, but possibly, and I I think that this might be a, a good explanation, it was because Samuel was not in favor of any aggression against Israel's enemy at this time. Now, why was that? Because Samuel knew that God hadn't given them the green light to go out in battle against the Philistines. Well, nevertheless... After Samuel receiving this news, as the courier came back and gave him the news of what had taken place at the battle, Samuel must have realized that the Philistines, encouraged by their victory, would march on the city of Shiloh and destroy the city to demonstrate to their own satisfaction the superiority of their gods over Jehovah of Israel. And so what did Samuel do? Well, it's been suggested, we don't have this here in the account, but it has been suggested, and probably so, that Samuel was one of the members of the priesthood who hid the sacred vessels, knowing that the Philistines were on their way, the sacred vessels of the temple, and the records of the nations that were later found at the location of the city of Nob. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel in chapter 21. Well, anyway... History tells us that in fact the Philistines did come to Shiloh and when they attacked that city, the inhabitants too disheartened to put up any resistance were massacred and Shiloh was destroyed. And God makes mention of this, by the way, in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 in verse 12. That is where the city of Shiloh is plundered. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And so God allowed the Philistines as his instrument of judgment to fall upon his people Israel. Now, let's go back to our text. In verses 19 through 22, we have there the record of the crushing defeat that was suffered by Israel and the bitter disappointment with which Eli finished the course of his life on earth, were not the only tragedies marked by the battle at Aphek. We also read, notice, of the hopeless despair of Phineas's, which happens to be one of Eli's sons, uh, one of the the hopeless despair of Phineas's pious wife. Okay, let's pick up now in the record verses 19 and 20. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas, Phineas's wife was with child due to be delivered. So she was near full term. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law, Eli, and her husband, Phinehas, were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor came her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Okay, listen. We can only imagine, we can only count the trials this good woman had already endured. Hers had been a troubled life, but she stayed with her husband. In spite of the fact that she was a thief, remember when we were first introduced to uh, Eli's two sons, They robbed that which belonged to uh, God and the various offerings that were uh, given to God there at the tabernacle. They were both fornicators. Remember, they had entered into sexual relationships with the women who ministered there in the tabernacle. So they were both thieves. They were both fornicators. But nevertheless, this woman bore her husband's child, children, cared for him, and also cared for her children, and I'm sure she prayed for her husband that he would get right with the Lord, but nevertheless, he never did. Her daily suffering had required she stay close to the Lord for her uh, strength, but this news was just too much. She gave in to an overwhelming feeling of desolation, and then in verses 21 and 22 we read, then she named the child that was born Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. That's what that name signifies, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been uh, captured. So once again, this news was just too much. She gave into an overwhelming feeling of desolation. Her grief was so great, it overcame her maternal joy for the birth of her son. So premature labor pains took the last of her strength from this woman. And so while the Philistines were pillaging the villages, she gave birth to a son, according to our text. But instead of rejoicing and being concerned for the baby's safety, her spirit was too weak to respond. And shortly before her death, relieved her of her suffering, she named her son Ichabod, as I've already mentioned, which literally is translated no glory, which, indica- which indicated that the glory of God had been removed from Israel. Now the term the glory of God, this is not the only place that we have reference to the glory of God. We see it frequently used throughout the scriptures. And that term the glory of God denotes the presence and majesty of God. So whenever you read that, that's what it indicates. Let me say it again. It denotes the presence and the majesty of God. And I hope that we can legitimately say even this morning that here in our presence is the glory of God. Back then, in those times, the glory of God was uh, uh, also referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. And it gave special privileges to the nation paul in his writing to the church in uh, at rome in romans chapter 9 in verse 4 as he's enumerating some of the privileges that had been given israel notice what it says romans chapter 9 in verse 4 who are israelites and then he goes on and talks about certain privileges that have been given them to whom pertain the adoption they were adopted by god notice there and the glory again, indicating the presence and the majesty of God among them, the covenants, God entered into a covenant, the Old Testament covenants with his people, Israel, the giving of the law, God entrusted the law uh, to his people, Israel, his word, and the service of God and the promises. So in other words, God had given special privileges to the nation of Israel, but now all of those things had been removed. And so for the visible presence of God to be forcefully taken from them was a tragedy too great to be described in words. And thus concludes one of the darkest chapters in the history of the nation of Israel. Okay, let's bring this down to personal terms now. And remember, once again, what are we talking about? The dangers of presumption. So what are we to take away from all of this? What are the principles that we can apply in our own lives? What do we learn here? Well, truly, there is a real danger in presumption. And the following is where Israel failed. And listen, don't make the same mistakes. What were those mistakes? Well, first of all, the leaders chose to make war without seeking God's counsel first. And what was the outcome of that? They were solidly defeated. You know, don't put yourself in a position where you find yourself dragging yourself back, beaten down, you know, because you didn't allow God to be a part of the decision-making process. Always make God a part of the equation. You see, they followed their misguided beliefs. The second error that they made was that they trusted in what God had done in the past. They were resting in a false hope. Listen, all of us have had glorious experiences of what God has done for us in the past. And I suspect if given the opportunity, many of you would be able to stand this morning and talk about what God had done for you in the past. You know, how that God delivered you in a certain situation or how that God had provided for you or how that God healed you or whatever. And all of those things are wonderful. But if those past experiences can't translate it into the present, and you're walking your relationship with God today, of what value are they? You see, that, again, was their uh, problem. That was their second uh, error. They trusted in what God had done in the past, resting in a false hope. And then they were also guilty. They looked to external religious artifacts for help. In other words, their faith was of the superstitious kind. You know, well, I don't. I don't even need to comment about that, right? And uh, you know, trusting in relics or, or uh, you know, uh, models or statues or you know crosses that we hang around our neck or, or Saint Christopher medals or things that we put in our car to ward off you know uh, accidents or those things. We we mustn't trust. You know, those things might remind us of of, of God and what. Uh, God had done in those person, people's lives, but that doesn't, gu- doesn't guarantee our uh, safety or God being with us. That is, if we're not walking with the Lord, right? Staying ever so close uh, to the Lord. And then lastly, they were guilty of trying to manipulate God. But you know, God is not subject to our manipulations. Now, when I use that term manipulations, what am I talking about? What am I referring to? Well, here are some contemporary examples of how we can try to manipulate God. And I think at one time or another, we were probably all guilty of this very thing. There are those who think that, for example, by fasting, we can prevail on God to answer our prayers, even if those prayers are not according to the will of God. And so we think just on the basis of our faith, listen, you know what fasting is really all about? We're removing all obstacles and distractions you know, from our lives so that we can seek the Lord for his counsel and direction. And it's always accompanied by prayer. But listen, we can't go forward without God giving us the green light. So many people, again, presumptuously, right, they fast, but, you know, but it it really doesn't bring uh, the desired results that they're uh, looking for. Why? Because their actions after they fasted are not according to God's uh, will, So that's just one of the ways that we can uh, presume upon the Lord. Then there are others who misquote and misapply what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 18 and verse 20. And that is where two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Hey, listen, Israel, they were gathered together in the thousands, but the presence of God was missing. How many times have we gathered together or we've called up one of our Christian buddies on the phone and we've asked them to pray along with us, agree with us in prayer. And thus, after we prayed, we're confident that God will answer favorably. But really, what's behind that is we're thinking we're forcing the hand of God. We're looking for God to give us the green light. And they have to do with things like, you know, we're looking, you know, we're, we're wanting to know whether or not we should make a purchase, or whether or not, uh, you know, we're to commit ourselves to a certain course of, of action. Maybe we're, you know, seeking and, you know, we want an answer. You know, we met this person and, and uh, we're thinking and, you know, we want to know whether I should begin to uh, enter into a relationship with this person. You know, take it to the, to the next step. Uh, or it may be that we're expecting God uh, to bail us out of debt or whatever, you know, you fill in the in the blanks. But we don't give God an opportunity to respond. And we think by just by doing these things and praying and having someone agree with us, you know, that we're going to get the desired result. And listen, I'm not suggesting that any of these things are wrong. I think that we should appeal to one another and ask them to, you know, to pray along with us. You know, but listen, I think that you also should be open when you ask that other person to pray for you. You know, after you pray, maybe that person that you're asking or counseling, you say, you know what, is that according to God's will? You know, are you sure about that? Can you actually agree with them in what they're asking God uh, for them to uh, do? Listen, if we are to avoid the hard lessons that were experienced by the Israelites, we must learn to subordinate our wills to God's will and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Of Jesus Christ, which we are told to do, which we are exhorted to do in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 5. Listen, gang, presumption only leads to trouble for us and those connected with us. It's only by living in reverential awe of God and obeying His word where we can avoid these errors. Let's pray. God, help us not to presume upon you or your favor or your presence, without our walking and staying close to you. And may we appeal to you and your word for each decision that we make. God, help us to learn these lessons, Father, uh, to receive this counsel from this chapter here in First Samuel. God, help us not to make the same errors. God, we thank you. Father, we know that it's uh, your desire to be a part of all of our decision-making processes. Lord, as a good father, you want to lead your children on the way of blessing. And so, Lord, help us to always be mindful of that. God, help us not to be presumptuous. Lord, help us not to manipulate you or try to manipulate you. It's impossible to do it anyway. God, we thank you. God, help us always to hear your voice very clearly. For we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's
0: house, where I long to be. Oh, my That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. Did you know that you could listen to Pastor Mike's teachings on your favorite podcast app? Just search for In My Father's House and be sure to subscribe. And let us know you're a listener in the comments. We'd love for you to join us for worship this Sunday at Harvest Christian Fellowship, too. You can find all the information you need at HarvestNYC.org. While you're there, you can reserve your seat by clicking on Contact and then the Register link. We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd, and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area, or if you're unable to attend in person, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time studying God's Word. We're live-streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to catch previous Sunday messages, click on the Resources tab. You can also watch services through our Vimeo link, or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to all of these are available at our website. One more time, that's harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to remind you just how much your Heavenly Father loves you. We also want you to know how grateful we are to have you as a part of our listening audience. Thanks again for joining us today, and we look forward to our continuing study of 1 Samuel next time here on In My Father's House.
1: There's a place for. Me.